What a great time to be together once again to open the Word of God. Together, I'll ask you to take your Bibles and open them with me to our study of 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Let's commit our time to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you would. Father, we thank you for this time to study together. <clears throat> we thank you that you have given us your Word that we might know you, that we might know truth, that we might obey it and be transformed by it. Thank you for strengthening our faith and confirming with your spirit and our spirit that we are your children through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, so many words are spoken in our day and age that are false untrue about you, about what is right, and your word tells us exactly what is true and right. So help us this morning, Lord, to discern, to understand, <clears throat> to think clearly, that we might know you more, and we might live for you in this world in which you have, have us for time. We long for your coming. We thank you for this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> We're focusing our attention this morning in First Peter, or I'm sorry, Second Peter chapter one, verses sixteen through twenty-one. Second Peter chapter one, <clears throat> verses sixteen through twenty-one. I'll just say at the outset, this will be a two-parter in this these very verses because there's just so much here for us. But I want to begin our time by reading these verses for us. Peter says to us, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we, were, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. <clears throat> and so we have the prophetic word made more sure of which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, <clears throat> that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. <clears throat> You'll notice as I read that, the parallel that I read this morning in our scripture reading from Matthew chapter 17, <clears throat> the very reference to the event that Peter is hearkening back to here in 2 Peter. And I want to begin this morning by asking us a question. And I, I want you to contemplate in your own minds, in your own hearts, how you would answer. And the question is this, on what foundation do you place the certainty of your faith? On what foundation do you place the certainty of your faith? In other words, what defense, what defense can you offer for the absolute certainty that what you believe concerning faith in Jesus Christ is in fact true? What defense can you offer to someone who might ask, Concerning your faith in Jesus Christ, what defense can you give? What defense do you give? On what defense are you standing 
that what you believe is in fact true. For those of us who may be unfamiliar with the theological term for this kind of question and answer, it is known as apologetics. Apologetics. The term apologetics finds its root in Latin and other European languages, and it's a term that describes giving a defense. That's why I used that earlier. And what defense would you give? Apologetics is a term for giving a defense. So when I ask that question, I'm asking for us to give a defense for the certainty of your faith. Give a defense for the certainty of your faith. When an unbeliever asks us to explain why we believe the things that we believe, how do we answer? How do you answer? What is the basis of your certainty? Do you have and can you make a defense? Do you have a defense? Can you make a defense when someone questions the certainty of what you believe? Every Christian has, at one time or another, struggled with that question. Because every true Christian will or will soon come in contact with someone who doubts the validity of what you say you believe. And many will say that you can have no certainty about those things, that they are just folklore, that they are just myths. They are stories made up in ancient times. They are passed down through oral tradition like Aesop's fables, but there is no certainty in them whatsoever. You cannot believe them. And at best, many have said that the Bible... They're just that, stories passed down, one family to another family, but they have no real foundation in them. There is no real foundation to them. In fact, there are sadly in evangelicalism today and throughout the last several centuries, those who would say they believe the Bible and yet are those who would say that the first five books of the Bible aren't actually true, that they're just myths. They're just stories. Now, maybe you're there this morning in your own mind. Maybe you've come here this morning and in your own mind, you've wondered about that. You're, cautious, you're, you're in your own mind wondering about the certainty. You're being reminded, maybe, maybe you're not fully there, but you're being reminded of a time when you were there recently, that you were wondering about the certainty of these things that we say we believe. Well, rest assured, you're not alone. You're not alone in that. In fact, that is exactly what the Apostle Peter is concerned with for us and for the readers of this letter that he has written. Because he is writing, as we have learned over the last several weeks, to struggling Christians. Those who are facing difficulty in the world in which they live facing difficulty with those who are around them, difficulty with people in their own circumstances in the world in which they live as they are being challenged about the certainty of what they believe. You say, how do you know that? Well, look at chapter 3. Look how Peter speaks of of this in just the first few verses of chapter 3. Beginning in verse 3 of chapter 3, he says to them, Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. They're following after their own lusts, and they're saying, Where is the promise of his coming? Peter's saying to these Christians, Listen, you need to understand something that in The last days, people are going to come around and they're going to say, yeah, you say you believe this. You say these things are true. But we question whether there's a certainty to it. You say this is going to happen, 
You say there's a promise of His coming, but we wonder about the certainty of all that. Peter says you don't need to be shaken by that kind of talk. Your faith doesn't need to be weakened. Your faith doesn't need to be undermined like slow running water eroding a rock. You don't have it. have to have it shape your, your faith in some way that is weakening it. Your faith doesn't need to be weak at all. You can stand strong in your belief because you have a sure and certain defense. In other words, the Christian faith and what we believe is not an irrational thing. In fact, I would go as far to say it's this, the most rational thing that anyone could ever believe. And so here we are. Here we are, and we have followed all that Peter has already told us, right? We've, we've gone through the verses in chapter 1 up to this point. We know already what God has done for us in verses 1 to 4. We know that God is the one who has saved us and that His divine power has granted to us, he says in verse 3, everything pertaining to life and godliness. We lack nothing through faith in Jesus Christ. We have a knowledge of God through that relationship with Christ, a knowledge unlike the knowledge that we might have simply through the general revelation where we can see, as Romans 1 said, the divine attributes of God, the invisible attributes on display through what He's made. We have a relationship with God, a knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. We know what God has done for us because He's granted to us His precious and magnificent promises in order that we might become partakers of His nature, the divine nature, so that we would escape the corruption, corruption that's in the world by lust. So we know what God has done for us who has saved us. We know that He has given us everything for life and godliness. And we know that our faith gain strength as we are exercising it through the character qualities that we saw in verses 5 through 7. We know when we are exercising and walking by this faith with all diligence, and we are living according to that faith, trusting God in every step of the way in that drive for moral excellence and and having that moral excellence be informed by a right understanding of the Scriptures so that we have self-control and perseverance in it and this godliness that outshines and shines in our life because of walking by faith and we exercise brotherly kindness and love We know that we are useful in those things because the Scriptures tell us that if these are ours and increasing, they render us useful and fruitful. We understand the results of doing that. We have been warned and know and seen even experientially in our own lives what happens when we do not exercise this gift of faith that has been given to us. We understand that sometimes when we are not exercising the faith that God has given us according to these qualities and, and equipping that God has given us, we will do what the world does. We'll sit in the corner and cower by fear, an ungodly fear because we're not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ in all things. And so we understand that. And now... As we come to verses 16 and following, we are given what is the strongest of encouragements. The strongest of encouragements for our faith. You say, what is that? Well, this is what it is. It's the verified promise of the return of Christ. The verified promise of the return of Christ. I mean, this is the same thing that these people were facing. Where is the promise of His coming, they said in chapter 3, verse 4. Well, we have a verified promise of His return. The return of Christ is, beloved, the central point of what we believe. It's 
center to our faith, central to the very reality of us believing in Jesus Christ and who Jesus Christ is by the Word of God, which God gave us about His Son, central to that faith is a belief that Jesus Christ is coming back again. Now someone's going to say, well, wait a minute. Can't someone still call that into question? Can't someone still say, yeah, just like they did here in verse 3, yeah, but where is the promise of His coming? Where's the promise of His coming? And the authority from which they make their claim doesn't seem to be all that different from the claim that's made here some 2,000 years ago as Peter was writing these words. Is Jesus coming back? They say, look around. Look around. I mean, after all, we've been around in this world doing the things that we humans do for a lot of years. Look at all the time that's passed since he rose from the dead, supposedly. Is he really coming back? Is it true? This is exactly what they said. Right? They said that, saying that, listen, Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Listen, ever since our own patriarchal fathers died, things have just been continuing on. You say Jesus is going to return, but where is the promise of His coming? So how do I know that I'm right and they're wrong? What defense can I make for the faith that I have? How can I say it's not irrational? so that I can stand strong in that faith. We say that Jesus is going to return. What's the guarantee? What's the guarantee of that? Where is our certainty? We might even ask it this way, on what authority is our faith based? What authority is it based? That's the question being answered here by Peter. On what authority is this reality based? And Peter gives us the answer, and it revolves around the most anticipated event that we believe. It revolves around the coming of Jesus Christ. Not only the coming of His first advent when He came to the earth and then showed who He is, but also on the promise that He will come again. And so here in verses 16 through 21, Peter claims... Two points of ultimate authority. You want to have a defense for your faith? Here's two points of ultimate authority that Peter gives us here in these verses. One is the personal testimony of the apostles. That's number one, the personal testimony of the apostles, and we'll look at that this morning. But two is the testimony of biblical prophecy. The testimony of biblical prophecy. And just in case you think those are weak arguments, both of them find their certainty in God Himself. Both of those points of ultimate authority find their certainty in God Himself. In other words, they are as certain as God is certain. They are as certain as the very character and nature of God is certain. In other words, God gives us certainty for our faith on the basis of apostolic testimony and biblical prophecy, and both of those groundings of, our, of the certainty of our faith are born in the very nature and character of God Himself. I've said this before, and I'll certainly continue to say it over the years that I have privilege to serve here, if you deny, if you deny or change in any way the character of God in your definition of who God is, you will have no certainty for your faith. If you change in any kind of way, in the slightest way or in a large way, any aspect of the very nature and character of God, different than how God describes Himself and shows Himself to be by general revelation and special revelation that you have right there on your laps, then you will have no certainty. You'll have no foundation for certainty 
to your faith, you'll have no certain defense. But when someone comes along and says, you claim all of this is true, and that's a good crutch for you, that might be good for you in your little puny life, but I want more to stand on. What is Peter's answer? What is Peter's answer to that? Here it is. First, your certainty is grounded in the fact that there is a personal eyewitness testimony as to who Jesus is. There are and is a personal eyewitness testimony as to who Jesus is. And we find it here in verses 16 to 18. Notice what Peter says again, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's an under, that's a, that's a, a phrase, that's a, a, a way for Peter to begin to say, listen, it doesn't matter what everybody else is saying to you. It doesn't matter how they're trying to undermine your faith and undermine the stability of what you believe about Jesus Christ. Listen, what they're saying is untrue because we didn't follow some kind of cleverly devised plan in order to tell you a story and a myth that you could carry on through the ages by oral argument and pass down from generation to generation so that it might seem good. We didn't do that. We didn't come to you with some kind of story. No, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. You notice that Peter doesn't do what so many might want to do today in defending their faith. Who says, oh, I'm going to defend my faith. They say, okay, well, I'm going to defend my faith by appealing to the superior nature of Christianity as opposed to everything else. That's true. Christianity, true Christianity is superior by way of anything else that's called a religion. Because Christianity is the only one that has a relationship with God through Jesus Christ by faith, who takes care of the problem that we have before God, and that is the sin issue. So it is, in that sense, superior. And many people point to that and say, listen, that's how I know it's true because it's superior to any other kind of faith out there, any other kind of religion out there. Just look at my own life, they say. Just look at my own life and the life of others who are truly saved. Doesn't the change in my life or in life of others prove the validity of what I'm saying about the gospel? Doesn't the change speak for itself? That's how somebody want to defend the certainty of the faith. And all those things are good by way of reality. There is certainly change that happens in the life of a person. They are new creatures, the Bible said. But we must know that while change is an indication of a true and real relationship with Jesus Christ... It's not solid proof of it. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, I'll just simply say this. Experientially, we each know individuals. We each know people throughout the history of our own short life here walking on this earth. We know people even in our own extended families, possibly, whose lives are very different now because of some personal desire to be a better person. In other words, their lives have changed because of some personal desire at reforming something in their life, or they went to some behavioral thing who helped them start a new habit and a new way of doing life. Their life has been somehow extended, maybe by way of health, because they stopped drinking alcohol. Their life has changed, changed in a big way here on this earth. They're no longer walking around as a drunk. Now they don't drink anymore. They're not walking around as a drunk anymore, but that doesn't mean they know Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean they have faith in Jesus Christ. And what we must understand is that the outward change of a life may or may not indicate certainty 
about a relationship with Jesus Christ in someone's life. May or may not. In other words, believing in the moral ethics of the gospel and even outwardly living by means of those moral ethics only proves that someone can adjust their life by way of their own activities, but it certainly doesn't prove any certainty of faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, having experiences in life are no basis for the certainty of Christianity. So what then is our certainty based on, and how are we to respond to those who call it into question? If I can't say, hey, look at my life, my life has changed, that's proof enough. Well, here it is. Here it is. What we do is we give testimony to the very fact of what Peter gives testimony to here. Peter says, I was an eyewitness of his majesty. What we point to is that apostolic witness. Peter says, I was there. Matthew chapter 17 that we read this morning. I, James, and John were there. Jesus took us there. We saw this. Jesus received honor and glory from the Father. God said from the glory of heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Peter says, we heard this while we were there. This isn't a story that was passed down to us through the ages. It wasn't told to us from our old patriarchs in the Old Testament that we all knew that are gone now. It wasn't any of those things. We were there. We heard it. We saw it. You see, beloved, our certainty is not based upon some kind of story. The certainty of our faith in Jesus Christ is not based upon a story that's made up. It's not based upon some kind of myth. The world is full of myths. The world is full of all kinds of stories, but not our Christian history. No, our certainty, the certainty of our faith is partially based upon the very testimony of personal eyewitnesses to the truth concerning Jesus Christ. We believe the eyewitness testimony. It's amazing to me that people will believe all kinds of unbelievable stories, unverifiable stories. People will believe someone who comes out no matter what age it is and says, I went to heaven and came back. Let me tell you about it. It's all here in my book. You should get the book so you can read about it. People will believe that and say, oh, this is true. Look at this person who came and went back and they're telling us about heaven was and all that they say contradicts the truth of the word of God. People will believe that, lock, stock, and barrel, something totally unverified, but something verifiable, something that has actual eyewitnesses, people who were there, people who saw it with their own eyes, they reject outright. They say, oh, that's just a myth. Listen, all, all we have to do is read the book of Acts and we can hear what it is that Peter and Paul and all the first preachers of the gospel preached. If, if, if it was a myth, they wouldn't certainly preach about Jesus Christ. They'd preach about themselves. Because if Jesus Christ isn't real and they wanted to have some kind of following for what else would it be for if they were preaching about Jesus Christ because they got nothing out of it. People don't develop stories and myths in order to, to just get nothing out of it. They do it because it's about them. They want to perpetuate them. And yet you read through the book of Acts and you read about what they preached. They didn't speak about themselves. They didn't speak about how wonderful they were. And gee, look at what we did and all the things that came about with us. No, they didn't talk about what happened to them. 
They simply stated the facts. The facts that they personally witnessed concerning Jesus Christ. They preached Jesus as the Christ. They preached Jesus as Lord. They preached Jesus as the Messiah who had come and that who would return. And they did it at the very cost of their lives. In fact, eyewitness testimony is even what Jesus used to bring certainty to those Jews who had believed what the Old Testament prophets said concerning the Messiah. Jesus even brought about eyewitness testimony. Just kind of highlight this a little bit. Go over to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Notice what Jesus says. And he said to his disciples, beginning in verse 1, it's inevitable that stumbling blocks should come. But woe to him through whom they come. And he talks about stumbling blocks. He talks about being led in a direction that isn't right. Someone saying something that's not true concerning faith and Jesus Christ and leading people astray. Woe to that person. It would be better for him if a millstone was hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. And that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. That's a pretty severe warning. Be careful what you say, right? Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, then forgive him. And so the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Jesus says, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Which of you has a slave plowing and entering and tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down and eat. But he will, will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me until I have eaten and drunk and afterward you can eat and drink. He doesn't thank the slave because he did things that which were commanded, does he? So too, when you do all these things which you are commanded and say we are unworthy slaves, you've done only that which you have done. Increase our faith. And then he says down in verse 22, he says to his disciples after he gives them the parable of the ten lepers, as the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you won't see it. And they'll say to you, look, look over there. There it is. Look here. Don't go away and do that. Don't go running after them. Just as the lightning, when it flashes in one part of the sky, shines in the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in His day. First, He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. That's what the Old Testament prophets say. Old Testament prophets said, listen, Jesus is going to come. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to suffer. He's going to die going to be rejected by this generation. They were having problems. People were saying, no, no, there's the Messiah. There's the Messiah. Look at this. And yet the Old Testament prophets said totally different. And then he uses these other examples. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, oh, hearkening back to history, hearkening back to the personal testimony of eyewitnesses, just as it happened in Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. You know Noah is true. You know what happened back there. That's not a myth. That's true. So as it happened with Noah, so it's going to happen now. What was happening? They were eating. They were drinking. Jesus speaks of these as facts. They're eating. They're drinking. They're marrying. They're being given in marriage. Up until the day Noah entered the ark. Noah had been preaching all along. It was happening. This is factual. This is not myth. And what happened? Flood came. Destroyed them all. Certainty. Listen, you can rely on the eyewitness testimony. It happened. 
was the same that happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Listen, you can believe the fact. Lot was there. Noah was there. These aren't myths, these aren't stories, this is eyewitness reality. This is exactly what happened. It will be just the same on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house, let him not go down to take them away. Likewise, let not the one who's in the field turn back. Listen, when it's happening, listen, you know it's true. You know it's coming to be because God said it's going to happen. God proved it's going to happen. He's given a history of it happening. Remember Lot's wife, he says? She doubted as she was leaving and got turned to salt. Whoever seeks to keep his life is going to lose it. Whoever loses his life shall preserve it. He says, I tell you, on that night, there's going to be two men, one in the bed, one will be taken, the other... One in bed and one will be taken. The other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken. The other will be left. Two men in the field. One will be taken. The other will be left. See, Jesus is just using history. He's saying, listen, these are personalized testimonies. This is reality. This is what's certain. God said it. God does it. It is that reality. Let's not have that escape our memories. Let's not have that escape our understanding. If God said it, it is done. It is done. You see, so many were going to come along and try to say your faith is irrational. They're going to try to say what you believe, oh, that's just a bunch of myth. That's just a bunch of nonsense. That's just stories. That's just a way of convincing you of something that has no basis in fact. That's all it is. And yet it's clear that the basis of our faith rests completely on certain facts borne out through the eyewitness testimony of those who were there, verified by God Himself. All one has to do is go through the Scriptures. All you have to do is flip through the book of Acts, see just what the apostles preached. And when you read them, remember that when they preached those things, they were killed for the very words they spoke. They were killed for that. No one in their right mind would be killed for a myth, something they made up. In other words, they placed their very lives on the validity of what it was they were saying. They placed the very fact of their life on the validity of what they were saying. They knew what they saw. And they didn't speak about themselves in those messages. They didn't speak about mystical experiences that they had when they entered these places, some unverifiable thing. Even when Paul was taken to the third heaven, he said, listen, I'm not going to talk about all that. No, they just preached the facts. They preached what they themselves had personally seen and what was made clear in the Old Testament. What had been prophesied concerning the coming of Jesus Christ and Him being the Messiah. In fact, I'll give you another example. Go to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. The great passage, Peter being a Jew. Beginning in verse 23, the next day he arose and went with them, that is these people had come from the Gentile lands in order to get Peter because Cornelius had had a vision 
Well, the next day, Peter goes with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa were accompanying him, and on the following day, he enters Caesarea. And Cornelius, this one who had a vision, was waiting for them and had called together his relatives, his close friends. When it came about that Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet, and he worshipped him. So here's Cornelius, who had seen the vision by God. God had given him a vision, and he falls down at Peter's feet, and Peter says, look, get up. He says, stand up. I'm a man just like you are. Peter's just saying, listen, I'm not special. I'm not special here. Don't worship me as special. It's not about me. And he talked with him, and he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to him, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who's a Jew to associate with a foreigner. He means to Gentiles, those who are non-Jews. The law says, I, I'm not supposed to be here, and I can't even visit you. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That's why I came, without even raising an objection when I was sent for. So, so why have you called for me? Why have you called for me? I want, I want to know, what, what is it? Why am I here? And Cornelius said, well, four days ago at this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in shining garments, and he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is called Peter, to come to you. He's staying at the house of Simon, the tanner, by the sea. And so I sent to you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we're all here. We're present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Peter wasn't told what to say by God. God just said, listen, you need to go with these guys. And here's Cornelius saying, okay, tell us what God sent you for. Well, I had this vision. We called for you. We've been faithful to that. Now tell us what it's all about. And Peter opens his mouth. Verse 34. I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel. What's that? That's Old Testament prophecy. The word which he sent to Israel, to the sons of Israel. What was he doing in that word? He was preaching peace through Jesus Christ. Old Testament prophecy was prophesying about Christ. Peter says the word that was given to them, those testimonies, those personal testimonies of what God was saying, in the prophecy, they're preaching Jesus Christ, that he's Lord of all. And you yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea. What took place? Since the baptize of John was proclaimed, what, what took place? You know Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he sent, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we witnessed all these things. Peter says, you heard what happened. You know what the prophet said. You heard about Jesus Christ. You heard what happened through him in all of Judea, and we were there. We saw it all. We witnessed all of these things that he both did in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, and they also put him to death, hanging him on the cross. We saw it. We saw that God raised him on the third day and granted that he should become visible not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is to us. He's talking about the apostles. To us. Who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to what? To preach to the people and to solemnly testify that this is the one who has been anointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Peter says, of him, of this one who is to judge the living of the dead, of him all the prophets bear witness. That through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. You see, Peter says it's eyewitness testimony. The prophets spoke about Jesus. We saw Jesus and we're here to tell you about Jesus. 
I'm not going to tell you a story that you should know. I'm not going to tell you some story passed down by the ancient fathers that came along and we're just perpetuating the story because it makes us feel good. No, we're here to do one thing and one thing only. We're going to tell you about Jesus. We saw him. We watched him. We were there. And we'll die for it. Now, Peter, he could have listed an entire list of facts concerning Jesus Christ. He could have highlighted all the miracles that Jesus did in his letter to the people that he's writing in 2 Peter. He could have listed anything. He could have told all of us of the way in which he had power over creation itself as Jesus calms the water on the Sea of Galilee. Peter could have talked about that. He was there. He could have told us that he was there when Jesus died and was buried and afterwards he saw the empty tomb. He could have told us that. He could have wrote about that. But Peter doesn't tell us about any of that. What does Peter tell us about? What does Peter ground the founding of our certainty on? He gives us the fact of the transfiguration. Peter testifies as a personal eyewitness of the testimony of God the Father. This is exactly what we do. This is exactly what our certainty is to be based on. We don't base it on some myth. We say this is what God said. Not because we were there, but there was people there. There were personal eyewitnesses there. We know what God said. It's a fact. Peter says, we didn't follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. It's interesting when you read through this and you look at the, the word for majesty, the majestic glory, this word majesty is, is almost like mega power. It's like super duper power. It's, it's like power that when you see it, it just blows you away. I was trying to think about this in my own mind and how, how to try to illustrate this. And some time ago, my wife and I, when my son was here with our grandkids, we went down to Boston, we went to the Museum of Science, and we went into the, 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 the lightning room that they have there. Some of you are smiling because you've been there. And, and you, you stand there and they say, okay, now we're going to have this machine, whatever it does, make lightning, right? And you sense the power that when that bolt comes out, I mean, it's powerful. And yet the word here is, it's mega power. When Jesus was transfigured, Peter was blown away at just seeing the power of God, just by the glory of God being revealed. Peter says, listen, you can have certainty in your faith because James and John and myself were with him when his powerful, majestic, divine glory was revealed. He says it was life-altering. Absolutely life-altering. We saw it. We heard the voice from heaven speak about him and we saw his amazing glory. Peter says, seeing his glory was unforgettable. Wouldn't it be? Wouldn't it be? I mean, I, I saw that little project at the science museum and I'll probably never forget that. And Peter sees the un hindered, unshrouded glory of Jesus Christ. And he says that moment, that very moment was stamped with the very voice of God the Father. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. He said we didn't not only saw the glory, we heard from the majestic glory. 
You see, beloved, our entire certainty depends upon that fact. Entire certainty depends upon the fact of the eyewitness testimony of these beloved saints. In other words, we either accept it as truth or we do not. The reason that I'm a Christian, the reason that I know Jesus Christ is because I believe what's written in this book. I believe what it says. I believe that it's true. I believe the eyewitness testimony of those who were there, of those who saw it, of those who have written about it, of those who have testified about it, those who have given their life because of it. I trust their testimony that this is what God said and thereby verifying what the Old Testament prophecies have said. So when I believe their testimony about seeing the glory of Jesus Christ, there's no way for me to be both intellectually honest and disbelieve all their testimony. I can't be both intellectually honest and disbelieve about what Jesus did while he was ministering on the earth because there were eyewitnesses there who talk about it. I cannot say it's just a myth because to do so is to dismiss the very testimony of those who were there. And therefore then the issue with someone calling into question my faith is really a question about the reliability of the witness. And beloved, we have no proven evidence that any of the apostles were not reliable. We have no proven evidence of that at all. And what makes us Christians is to believe the testimony concerning Jesus Christ. We believe the testimony concerning Jesus Christ. That He is the only begotten Son of God. That He was born of a virgin. His birth was miraculous. It wasn't like the rest of us. His conception was miraculous. That He did genuine miracles because He is God and He does control creation. That He was transfigured on the mountain, shining forth His divine glory. And He died. He died for the sins of those He would save. Some from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. And He rose from the dead and He is coming back in the same way that He left. I either accept these things as fact or I say they're nothing but myths. The only two choices I have. And some might try to say, well, this book called the Bible is just filled with a bunch of stories and words we say no. No, we say just what Peter says. No, no. No, no, we have the prophetic word. We have the prophetic word, the scriptures. We haven't made more sure. How? By the facts. By the facts attested to through those who were there, those who saw it happen. And I would also add, we have the Christian church. We have the Christian church. Built upon the testimony of the apostles. This is the church of God. How does one explain the apostles who wrote the gospels and then preached a gospel that got them killed? How do you explain that? Other than they believed it because they saw it. They were there. You know why we're here today? Because of the testimony of the apostles. That's why we're here. The church has been built throughout the centuries because of the testimony of Jesus Christ born in the hearts of his people. 
And so we either believe the testimony or we do not. And so I ask again, what foundation is your faith built? What foundation is it built? Peter wants us to have a strong faith. He wants us to not be taken by false prophets, right? He's going to talk about that in chapter two. He's talking about true prophecy and the trueness of what happened. And the eyewitnesses were there. And he says in chapter two, but false prophets also arose among the people. How are you going to tell the difference? How are you going to tell the difference between a Peter, a James, and a John, the apostles, their eyewitness testimony, and those who were not, but said they have the truth? How are you going to tell the difference? Well, Peter's going to get into that in chapter 2. So on what foundation is our faith built? It's built on the testimony of eyewitnesses who were there as they saw and heard God the Father magnify the Son, which testified to the trueness of the Old Testament prophecy. You see, either we believe those as facts or we dismiss them as myths. On one, you and I as Christians will be steadfast in our faith. But if we go the other way, there's only failure Because when someone comes against us, we'll compromise. We'll change. We'll throw it away because we have no validity in our hearts. So what is my hope this morning as we just tie up this this morning? What's my hope? My hope is that we will not be Christians who will apologize for our faith. That we will not be Christians who will be demoralized because someone says, yeah, well, I don't believe that. Or yeah, you're, un, you're, you're, you're just unrational in your thinking. I trust that we will be Christians who will not be ashamed because someone says that our faith is not rational. No, we have a rational faith. We have a rational faith. It's more rational than any other rationality that's out there when it comes to religion. Our faith is based upon the eyewitness testimony of those who were there, and it was confirmed by God Himself. Did any wonder in verse 19, we get to this next week, Peter says, and so we have the prophetic word made more sure. So here's my encouragement to us. Stand fast in your faith. Stand fast in your faith. Don't be deterred. Don't be deterred by the foolishness of the world and what they say and how they call into question. Don't be deterred. Even if you're standing by yourself, you stand fast and see how God will glorify his name by it. That glory may mean that while you're tied to the stake, they do light the fuse. And you go up in a flame of glory, all to the glory of God, for the fact that you stood, you stood for your faith. Don't be deterred. What you believe is true. And God will be glorified by it through us. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you once again for our time this morning. Such a simple truth, Lord and yet so profound. So profound that we could easily know you have given us proof. So many ask for proof. Well, you've given it to us. You just call us to believe it. Lord, so we who have our faith challenged might be strengthened. We thank you for the solidness of your word. We thank you that you didn't just sit back and for the whole time just simply say, because I said so. But you condescended to our weakness and you gave us proof. You showed us exactly who you are. You confirm your son, Jesus Christ, through the eyewitnesses who were there so that when we believe, even though your spirit confirms with our spirit, when we trust you, change us into a new person, and yet you give us 
concrete evidence through the testimony of eyewitnesses that what we believe is in fact true. It's certain. It is as certain as your very nature and character, and we thank you for that. Lord, thank you for strengthening our faith this morning. Thank you for allowing us to be here. Help us to remain steadfast in the midst of this world. For we know Jesus Christ is coming back. We just want to be ready. Lord, if there's those here who don't know Christ, don't know you yet, Lord, convict their hearts, challenge them by their own sinfulness, that they might turn to you, that they might know real living, have their sins forgiven and embrace Jesus Christ by faith, begin to walk in that purity of life. Thank you for building your church. Thank you for bringing us into it. Bless your people as they go out, Lord. For your sake we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.